so fun to be here. I'm really excited. I love, um, there's just something about this stage of life that it feels like such a moment, such a crossroads moment, and I'm excited for you and all that's ahead for you. Don't let anybody sell you a bill of goods that the world is going to be so bad that your life won't be good. Just believe that God is calling you into the most exciting season that there has ever been to be alive on planet Earth. You know, you're you're it. And I'm trusting you with my future because when Social Security runs out, I'm going to need to live with one of you. Please. <laughs> Josiah is my only begotten son here. I shall. Maybe I'll just live with him. Um, <laughs> And I won't do the dishes either. <laughs> Kidding. He's excellent about doing the dishes. Um, I was going to call Ben yesterday and say, hey, man, what did you say last week? Because I don't want to just repeat everything. I mean, it's shame. We're talking about shame. And, and then I just really felt like I shouldn't. I felt like, you know, this topic is so deep and so pervasive. It is. We're going to we're going to see tonight how this is probably the original uh, fault line between mankind and God. And so I thought, if you need to hear it twice, you need to hear it twice. You know, whatever. We're just going to trust that the Holy Spirit has this thing all figured out. Um, did any of you have parents who used to say when you get in trouble, you should be ashamed of yourself? And that's really bad parenting. You should call them afterwards and tell them. It's really, really bad parenting. Um, and, you know, Stacy said tonight it's a shameless plug. When we say shameless plug, we honestly kind of mean we're a little bit, we're a little bit ashamed of it. That's what shame, you, you're shameless. It implies that a little shame is a good thing. Like a little bit of shame is like kind of like humility. Or like you're kind of holding yourself back where you should be. But really, shame is always, always bad. It always is going to kill us, and it's always going to separate us from God. Um, and shame tends to hide in our lives, and then it hides until it can't. And it reveals itself not usually as shame. It reveals itself usually as anger or um, overspending or overdrinking or denial or um, rejection or broken relationships. It reveals itself really in anything you compulsively engage in to make yourself feel better. So in fact, for a minute, think back to the very first time you ever did something you didn't want to do because of what somebody else might think, or you didn't do something you did want to do because of what somebody else might think. The, if you can think of the very first time, you've identified an entry point of shame. Some way that you modified your behavior in order to be more or appear to be more or try to fit better or try to be more worthy. Those are the kinds of things that, that seep into our bloodstream. And it's hard to even know they're in there until we start to see it be, like behavior manifest. That we say, oh, I'm not okay. I'm stuck. I've got some chains that need to break. Um, shame is kind of the topic of the moment right now in the mental health field. Everybody's talking about it in the self-help world. And it is really as old as the very beginning of time. We see in the very beginning in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are in the garden and they love it there and it's beautiful. And God has given them one rule. And outside of the one rule, there are no rules. They are, they are as free as you can be. In fact, I remember a friend of mine uh, said, I could never serve your God. I'm just too much of a free spirit. And I was like, oh, you are not as free as God. 
I mean, he's the freest spirit there is. God created us to live in freedom. One rule, and the one rule is don't eat the apple, don't eat the fruit of this tree. Don't do it. And so, you know, Satan comes in and tempts Eve, and she eats, and Adam eats after. And then we always say, in fact, I went to Bible college where they taught us to evangelize by saying sin separates us from God. And they taught us to use the hand motions so people would really get it in their head. Your sin is keeping God away from you. And it wasn't until a lot longer in my life when I realized when Adam and Eve sinned, God went looking for them. God went running after them, and they were hiding. Why? Because they said we were ashamed of ourselves. It wasn't their sin that separated them from God. It was their shame that separated them from God. And so your shame, whether it's over sin, failures, mistakes, whatever, we'll talk about what some of those things are, is the most toxic thing you could keep in your life, both spiritually and physically. Shame fills you with cortisol. Shame fills your system with unhealthy chemicals. It's something we got to deal with. And the way to deal with it, I think half the battle is recognizing it, how it feels when it hits, and saying, God, I want this out of my life. I don't want to live in shame. And so what's the difference between shame and guilt? Because we, you know, someone who doesn't have any guilt when they do things wrong is called a sociopath. And so that's not what we're after either. So guilt, actually, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of guilt. I think guilt leads us to the right place. Um, and so shame is bad. Guilt is good. That's the essential of it. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. There are lots of shame-causing things in our lives, in our culture. There are, we could all talk about a billion different things. Um, and most of, most of this whole thing for me on shame comes from my own life and comes from having sat across a desk in my office for 20 years talking to teenagers and honestly eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds and hundreds of people for whom this was the issue at hand. They don't usually know it. They usually think it's my marriage is bad or my finances are bad or whatever, but usually it comes back to something that's rooted in shame. So a couple of categories I think most shame falls into. One is the shame of mistakes, failure, or sin. Like I was saying, people say, I just I have no regrets about anything I've done because it's led me to who I am today. Be really careful with that thinking. I mean, just be really careful because... If I make a mistake, I have given the Holy Spirit permission to let me feel it. I want to feel that a little bit because I'm not going to learn from anything I don't feel. We are mind, will, emotions. We are body, soul, spirit. Unless something hits where I feel that I have said something that crossed a line, that hurt someone, I've made a mistake, I've violated God's principles, I've done it. Unless I feel it, I'm not going to learn from it. But, but. But shame is when it's not, uh, it's not this sorrow over what I've done. It's sorrow over who I am. Now I don't know anymore who I am. Now I'm ashamed of what I am and not just my behavior. And so keeping it separate is really important. Um, so I love this scripture, Psalm 32, how David handled um, sin in his life. And it was bad sin, like sleeping with somebody's wife and then having her husband killed. I mean, I dare you. I dare you to outshame that guy. 
was shameless. Um, (laughs) Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you took away the guilt of my sin. He took away the guilt because David confessed it. It doesn't say I denied the guilt of my sin. I shoved the guilt of my sin under the rug. I pretended I didn't do it. I said, you know, everybody makes mistakes and I'm fine. Somebody else has done worse things. No, it wasn't any of that. It was, I confessed to God. I felt it. I lived in it for a minute and then you took it away. So if guilt has been hanging around for a long time, that's probably not guilt. That's probably shame or it's guilt that hasn't been confessed. We have lost in the church the beautiful, beautiful spiritual practice of confession. We have lost it. We have become a hidden culture. And i that's not your fault. That's my generation's fault for creating a church that's too pretty to look at. And so you are the ones that can break through that barrier and say, let's be who we really are because confession will make us more and more like Jesus Christ. So we should not fear confession. We should run hard at it. It's so good. We'll talk about that more in a second. I know my notes are just a wreck tonight. Um, This one, how do we tell guilt from shame, from sorrow, from regret, from all of these things? Um, 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief, shame. Godly grief, guilt. Godly grief says, I'm going to push toward the cross of Jesus and know this is already taken care of, and I'm going to deal with this thing. And we're going to talk about how to deal with it, too. Another thing that we uh, that tends to cause shame is our history. Um, there's this story that's so powerful to me in Second Samuel where there's a little kid who is the son of Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, and his name is Mephibosheth. And in this big uh, cataclysmic war for the kingdom, when David and Saul go to war, and Saul's family is swept out of office, a nanny picks up Mephibosheth, who is five years old, and she runs with him, and she drops him. And now, years later, Mephibosheth is crippled. He's lame in both feet. And um, honestly, I, I, I've had four or five-year-olds of my own, and I can't think of a way you could drop them that they would be crippled for the rest of their life. Like, unless that nanny was three stories tall. How, how did that happen? And I really think this is the nature of childhood wounds. Something that that really would maybe not be a big deal otherwise gets inside of us and marks us and marks the way we move from the rest for the rest of our lives. And so David is now the king and he's holding all the cards and he calls Mephibosheth in and he says, Mephibosheth, I'm going to make you a son. I want you to put your crippled feet underneath my dinner table every single night. I'm going to change your life and your circumstances. And Mephibosheth falls in front of David and he says, what would you ever want with a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth names himself. His whole identity is wrapped up in that one line. And what I want to say to you about that is it does not matter if your circumstances change, if your shame doesn't. Mephibosheth carries his shame right into the palace. It doesn't matter that now everyone loves him. It doesn't matter that now he's going to be the son of a king. Internally, he knows he's a dead dog. 
And so if you wait for your history to change, if you've been trying to like deny it or hide it, I had the house that nobody wanted to go to growing up, or I had the parents I was embarrassed about, or, or I had the clothes nobody liked, or I was just not, I just, my history wasn't good. Or, or if, if the things in your life that happened in your home have caused you to be ashamed, it's not moving out of it in and of itself that will change that for you internally. What changes it internally is the healing of Jesus Christ. And then circumstances are not the boss of you. And your history isn't the boss of you. And it's so important, I think, to understand and identify any place as a kid when you got dropped identify it you can feel it and then ask God to take away the shame of that and identify the ripple effect of it in your life what's it caused you to believe about yourself what have the words of your parents caused you to believe about yourself um conservative estimates say that one in four children experience sexual abuse before the age of 18 a UCAL study of 248 women in Los Angeles County showed that 62 percent of them at least uh, had at least one instance of sexual abuse before the age of 18. Um, shame is in the uh, Hebrew definition, shame is the removal of honor. And so in this situation, for these women, this was not their fault. That it wasn't a mistake they made. It wasn't a sin they committed. This was something done to them. And yet their violation is over. And yet shame can stay and keep replaying and keep replaying who they are in their heads all the time. And so here's my argument sometimes with the, with the evangelical church when, and, and I just, I just want you to understand how shame recasts how we see ourselves and it recasts how we see, how we think other people see us. So for, for years, and I think this trend is ending now, I've complained to Ben about it a lot, but I think the trend is ending now where, you know, very cool, young, hip pastors stand up and they talk about their smoking hot wives and they talk about how they were virgins on their wedding night and they talk about how cool they are and how that's how you should do it. And I always sit there just dying in the back because I realize that at least one in four girls in that room never had the choice about their own virginity. And so that wonderful, well-meaning pastor has just reinforced a shameful identity for her. We have to be so careful. You know, I, I, I feel really strongly that abortion is not God's heart, but I feel really strongly that women who have had abortions are also on God's heart. And so we want to be so careful how we communicate even the truth in the word of God, understanding people carry with them a history, and our history is loaded. It is loaded with all kinds of things. And so we want to be careful with each other, but I'm, I'm telling you, two people, uh, shame recasts how we see ourselves, but it recasts how we think people see us. Through all my years in young adult ministry, I had many, many, in fact, I was over interns here. We used to have tons of interns, and we had a no-dating role, which was the bane of my existence, because then you have to babysit the no-dating role. And so um, then I would have people come in, and the young girl would sit across from me, and she'd be like, I've met this wonderful guy, and I know I'm not supposed to date, but I just really want to date him. And I don't think it's really, he's not really good for me, and he's not really the best, but I just really love him, and what shall I do? <laughs> and so... I would be like, well, you know, I mean, my best advice is I think you should do what God is telling you to do. That's my, my best advice, but I'm not your boss, your mom, or your God. So, you're, you, you know, you're going to have to walk this thing out. And inevitably, she's going to date the guy. I mean, she's just going to date the guy. 
I, and I, I am being completely transparent with you when I say I don't care. I care in that I think that's probably not going to go well for her, but I think Fallout is a really good teacher. And I hope it doesn't cause any permanent damage in her life, but I also know there's a limit as to how much I can control the strings on what people do. And so I'm going to love her. I don't... I'm not, I want to see her. I want to have coffee with her. I'm going to love her. But inevitably, they ask me what to do. They don't do what I say to do. And then they never want to see me again. They think I don't like them. They think I'm mad at them for not going my way. They're ashamed of their decision, and they're projecting that on me because I'm not ashamed of them. I ran into a friend of mine on Sunday who's been living a tough life recently, had a really hard, hard year, and has made some funny decisions. Um, and I was talking to him, and he was just kind of telling me how his life was. And I just, I just said, you know what? I know it's been really hard, and I see you're really trying. And I, you just have to know I'm really proud of you. And he said, thank you. That means so much to me. And I said, God's really proud of you. And he said, well, I think God will be once I change my behavior. So just think for a minute. I am so stupid and sinful and terrible in my heart, and he thinks I can be proud of him more than God could be proud of him. He thinks that I, Bo Stern, have more grace on his life than the one who died for him on a cross while he was still a sinner. Because shame has recast the way he sees God seeing him. And I shook my finger in his face, and I said, God is proud of you for being you, for existing on this planet. God is proud of you. Does that absolve us from making good decisions? Does he wish you would, you know, do better? Sure, yeah, he wants good for you. He wants the best for you. But we've got to get out of this idea of, like, we can't sin because our sin breaks God's heart. No, sin breaks God's heart because he sees it breaking us. Because we are his precious treasure. So don't be ashamed of your history. God can rewrite it. And, and he can just, he's using it to make you the beauty that you are. Um, don't be ashamed of your sorrow. I really get wanting a life that looks good. I get wanting the world to watch because things are going so well. In fact, we teach that thing of like, live a life that's so cool that people look at you and go, I want to just whatever you're doing, I want to do that too. I'll have what she's having. That's what, you know, we just, we preach that message that Christians' lives are going to look so cool that everybody's going to want to do it too. That has not been the story of my life. I mean, I, I don't know if you know the story of my life, but I'm a tragedy. And I had to get used to it. I mean, for a long time, I think people looked at my life and thought, oh, that looks cool, you know, kids and marriage and whatever. And then my husband got sick with a terrible disease. And all of a sudden, I was driving a monster wheelchair van around. And I had a home filled with medical equipment. And it was not the life that anybody envied. In fact, it, there was a season in my life when people would come and tell me these tragedies in their life, like, my son is going to prison. And then they would say, but it's nothing compared to what you're going through. And I was like, oh, man, I'm so tired of being everyone's worst-case scenario. Um, and so I get it. I don't understand why sorrow is shameful, but sometimes it is. Sometimes it really is. Sometimes sorrow just seems like the opposite of success. And um, your sorrow may be caused by loss or rejection or maybe, maybe caused by disappointment and life just not going like you thought it would, 
or by the fact that it doesn't look like everybody else's life looks on Instagram. Um, be careful not to confuse sorrow with shame. Be careful not to confuse loneliness with shame. It's not a shame to be alone. It can sting, but don't let it be a shame because it's not meant to be that way. There was a lot I just didn't see coming in my life. I didn't see coming when I was planning my perfect wedding that someday I would you know, feed my husband through a tube. I didn't see it that I would be a widow at 49. I just, I didn't see those things coming, but I do see the goodness of God in it. And I don't feel ashamed of it. I feel really proud of God's work ethic in my life. I feel really, really impressed with him. Um, honestly, when I look at my son up here, when my husband got sick, his biggest fear was that his kids would not trust God because of that. And uh, I just watch my kids, and I just think, go, God. You're just so good. And our history can't stop us, but shame can stop us. Um, and I added this one in, you guys, and I didn't want to because I thought it was, seemed kind of dumb, and I thought you might laugh. But then I just kept thinking that I should. So I am. Don't be ashamed of your parents. Just don't. I mean, the world wants to sell us this whole big bunch of garbage that it matters more than it does. And one-third of our being is our physical self. So it does matter. It affects what we do and who we are. But And Jesus even mentions it. You know, who of you by worrying can add even one inch to your height or one hour to your lifespan? But I think it is in a world filled with comparison and criticism it can feel like this never-ending vortex of inadequacy. And man, we just got to refuse to let that land on us. I read a quote by a photographer today who said, I have never seen a truly beautiful woman because I always know there's a prettier one around the next corner. Oh, who wants to live like that? So dumb. I want to be who Jesus made me to be. And I want to be the best that can be, but I don't want to be better than that. I think some of us are trying to be better than Jesus made us to be. Um, so it's easy to say, don't be ashamed. How do we deal with it? When Ben and I did the workshop at winter camp, I don't know if any of you were there, but it was so, it was wonderful. But they kept asking questions, and, and, and we were running out of time, and, but they had so many questions. And I felt like every question we answered, more hands went up the next time. But the question was always some um, variation on, but, so what do I do if I can't get out from under shame? No, I mean, what do I really do? No, I mean, but really, what do I do? <laughs> and so, and that workshop is also famous for someone having asked the question, did either one of you have sex before you were married and do you regret it? So first time I was ever asked that in a workshop. In any setting, I'm pretty sure. I don't think I've never been asked that. So, um, <laughs> Uh, three things shame needs to thrive in your life, secrecy, silence, and judgment. Those three things will keep shame alive and well in your life, secrecy, silence, judgment. So here's how we get it out of our hearts where it hunkers down and causes us anger and pain. Um, Four-step way out. First one is reach out to someone you trust and tell your story. Um, it's really important that you reach out to someone who's going to encourage you, though. So you pick that pick that friend wisely but it's amazing how much freedom there is even if that person has no answers for you there is power in 
speaking it out and bringing your story out of hiding. There is a power in that. And oftentimes what you're going to find when you tell someone your story is they're going to say, oh, I thought I was the only one who felt that. And then there's like, oh, I'm not crazy. I'm, I'm, I don't have to be ashamed and I'm not crazy. Um, pull it out of hiding and play, place it squarely in the light of day. My boyfriend calls this cutting things down to size. And I always really like that. Like when I keep something inside myself, it grows and grows and grows and grows. But when we talk about it, it's like, oh, I can see how big that really is now. So reach out to someone you know and you trust and tell your story. Um, second, um, watch conversations. Um, we could also call this place yourself by the right stream. I, uh, Psalm 1 says... The righteous are like a tree planted by rivers of water. And so all the stuff we soak in is what becomes who we are. And I cannot tell you how many women I've sat across who are buried under the words of their stupid boyfriend. I can't tell you who have taken on his opinion of them like he's God or buried under the weight of a mom who wanted her to be skinnier and prettier or whatever. Buried under the weight of the wrong stream, connected to the wrong source. And when we, when we pull up to the wrong source, we fill our life with the wrong identity and we get messed up. Watch how you feel when you leave conversations. Watch how you feel about yourself. Pay attention to it. Does that person make me feel more worthy and like a child of God, not more flattered, not more beautiful, not more whatever, but more um, satisfied and fulfilled and peaceful and myself? Can I be myself? That's my, that is my number one thing when I meet a new couple. If people start dating, I always would, would tell my husband, I really like who they are to, when they're together. I like what they bring out in each other or I don't like what they bring out in each other. I love it if you can become your truest self with your truest people. Pay attention to the sources you, you are next to. You, you may need to, like, Instagram may not be a good stream for you. Comparison might not be a good stream. It may reinforce things that aren't true of yourself. So pay attention to the stream. I, I uh, was raised in a culture that was very behavior uh, focused. We were, it was a spiritual culture. My Bible college was really strict and we had lots of rules. And I, and I don't want to be overly critical because I feel like I got, I was discipled pretty well in terms of truth. But I also know that our behavior was the evaluator for our spiritual condition. And it taught me the game playing thing about look good and do it right and talk right and make sure you dress right and do it right. And then you're doing okay. And it taught me that. It taught me this is who, how you live for the approval of the world. And, and then I was in ministry for a long time, and then my husband got sick. And when he died and I became a widow, I had all these decisions to make. And I realized I grew around my culture, and I grew around my husband for 30 years. And now I have to make decisions about who I'm going to be. I have to make decisions about my money and my time and who I take vacation with and who I date and where I go and how, where I work and what I write. These are all my decisions to make. And it was overwhelming. And I found myself looking sort of out at the crowd thinking, I hope they like what I'm doing. 
I hope it looks okay to them. And finally, I was agonizing over this decision one day, and I was, I was running the butte, and I was getting closer to God on the butte. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm going over and over this decision. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I really, and be careful how you hear this, but I really did feel like God said, I never asked you to make a decisions. I just asked you to live close to me. Why do you think your decisions are the key to everything in life? Why do you think you're the boss of everything? Just live close to me. And then if you make a mistake, I'm going to still be there. And if you succeed, I'm going to still be there. But don't start putting all of this pressure on you to live a good life. And then he said the words that have changed my life. You need to do what I tell you to do and ignore the cheap seats. Because the cheap seats are going to always have something to say about your life. But they are not living it. And you let the cheap seats cause you shame, you're going to live a life that is half what it should be. So that was when I felt like he was saying, you have pulled your chair right up next to the stream of public approval. And I want you next to the stream of my presence. That's what I want. So cut off all the other streams that are, that are, are speaking stuff into your life that causes you to get stuck. Um, and the, in terms of conversation... And words, the, the most important and the most damaging conversation goes on in your head. You're, you're probably the one that tells yourself the worst kinds of things about yourself. And so that's why you have to know who Jesus is and what he thinks of you so that he can continually remodel your thinking about yourself. Change your words about yourself and to yourself. I have a friend who always would call herself stupid and fat and just so many things. She just would always do it. And finally, one day, I just said, no more. I would not let anyone talk about one of my daughters like that. I would not let anyone talk about anyone I love like that. And I will not let you talk about my friend like that. You are my friend. And th that, those kinds of words, I'm, you do it on your own time, but you don't bring me into that. Be that kind of stream for people. You just got to. We've got to do it for one another. The world's hard enough. Um, three, build a good bullet. If you have some kind of issue in your life that comes back over and over again and you find yourself like you're sitting in the car and all of a sudden at a stoplight and all of a sudden some kind of thought comes in reminding you of something stupid you did or something stupid you said or something that was done to you, something that's shameful and you feel that icky feeling, build a bullet that you can shoot into that situation. I have a friend who would not mind me tell you, telling you this story. She um, had an affair, and her husband just so graciously stuck with her and forgave her, and they were doing really well, doing really well, but she still just cannot get over that. And she has a sister who keeps telling her, y that's who you are. That's who you are. You're, you're an adulteress. That's who you are. And so finally, we sat down, and we built a bullet for her. For every time her sister spoke into her mind, and every time it came into her mind, this is what you're going to say to yourself. I, um, one of the most shameful moments in my life was uh, when my husband was just, I don't know, probably three months before he died. And I don't know if you know ALS, but it's Lou Gehrig's disease, and it just paralyzes you inside your own body until only your eyes and brain function. Um, and there, he was just taking care of him was just the hardest thing that I've ever, ever done. It's just really difficult to be in charge of someone who's that profoundly disabled and all the decisions were life or death decisions. And, and there, we hired a caregiver late in the process and because of some stuff in her personal life, she quit one day 
And I had an absolute meltdown. I just was like, how will I ever do this without help? Because I, I just had 40 hours a week when I had a break that I couldn't, that I didn't take care of him. And I just was crying. And it was just a meltdown. And Steve was trying to comfort me and trying to comfort me. And I looked at him and I said, you have no idea what I'm going through. I said, to a dying man. And... Um, when he died, I, and we, you know, he was so good and kind and forgave me and I asked forgiveness and, but it replayed in my head like a million times. Um, even the night that he died, I laid down in my bed and I just kept thinking, you, you, you blew it. And I, I want to say, even with humility, I didn't blow it with my husband. I took good care of him, but I made some big mistakes in it and the mistakes were all I could remember. And so I had to build a bullet finally that would deal with that shame. And so every time that situation would come, I mean, it would come, that memory would come into my mind during worship. Like it would just land and I'd be like right back to that moment of shame. And so I built a bullet and it was, I took care of my husband imperfectly, but faithfully for 30 years. I made mistakes, but neither he nor Jesus remembers them. And I said it over and over and over and over and over again until that had no more power in my life. And you just got to build a bullet. If there's something, you know, if you slept with the wrong person, if you cheated somebody out of something, if you were bad to a friend, if you were bad to a parent, there's something that keeps coming back to you as you go through it. You need to build a bullet to deal with that. You've felt it. You've confessed it. Now keep shooting it down. Get it out of your life. And if you need help building a bullet, email me and I will help you. Um, and then number four is from the greatest movie scene of all time. And you're going to understand it because you were of the era. Um, okay, so Rafiki. Rafiki comes to Simba and he wants him to see his dad. And and Simba goes and looks in the pond, and it's a reflection of who? Himself. And he's like, that's not my dad. And then Mufasa, in some sort of weird kind of paranormal vision, <laughs> floats above the clouds and says, Simba, you have forgotten me. And Simba says, I haven't forgotten you. And he says, Simba, in forgetting you, in forgetting you you've forgotten me. Remember who you are. Um, remember who you are. You remember who you are. You are bought with a price. And if you look in the reflection of water, you ought to see the reflection of Jesus Christ. He is he, all your sins covered by him. All your mistakes covered by him. All your failures covered by him. He didn't just die for your shame. He died as your shame. He smuggled himself into humanity so he could blow up death from the inside. He is your only reliable identity. And so the more you push your chair up next to who he is, the more you're going to know who you are. Remember who you are. When you forget that you are bought with a price and you are wholly and completely and entirely loved, when you forget that he is desperate for you, you forget who he is. And so these four things I give to you as a starting point for dealing with shame, and I'm going to be praying for you through the rest of this series, that God does some real chain breaking because I think the world is dying for people who know who they are, 
who become a good stream, who speak life into the rest of the world. Gosh, let's be that. I want to pray with you. Jesus, we thank you for the kind of identity that comes only from you. And God, for all the stories that are playing in different heads right now, for all the memories, for all the things that land when we think about the things that have caused shame in our lives, we ask that you would come, that you would um, blow it up from the inside. We offer our hearts, we offer our commitment, we offer uh, our our devotion to you and to your word and to your presence. God, I pray even that we would be drawn to your word in a new way, not because it's a rule or not because it's a spiritual discipline, but because it tells us who we are. So God, draw us to you and to the resources you give and the life you offer. We love you because you're beautiful. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks so much, you guys. That's awesome. He smuggled himself into humanity so he could blow sin up from the inside. That is good stuff, you guys. Uh, I hope you enjoyed being in exchange tonight. Uh, a couple quick things as you go. Number one.